Simon Peter was a Galilean fisherman. As a Galilean, he was from the northern, rural, more conservative part of Israel. Simon likely grew up attending synagogue worship each Sabbath day, hearing the Old Testament read and explained. Of course, for Simon, it wasn't the Old Testament. It was the only testament. It was the Word of God. Peter's family and neighbors were likely folks who took the Word of God seriously. They cared deeply about the covenant that existed between the nation of Israel and God that went back to the days of Moses and what happened there at Mount Sinai. And being part of this conservative family and this conservative part of Israel, they're looking around and seeing the influence of Roman paganism. And they're watching more and more of their kinfolk more and more of their fellow Israelites forsaking the ancient paths, forgetting the covenant made with God at Sinai, jumping into this new, modern, up-to-date Roman way of life. And even the leaders of Judaism, those who were supposed to lead and care for the souls of Israel, the high priests, the overseers of the temple, the Sanhedrin, they had by and large gone liberal. They had become corrupt. They cared more about power and money than souls. So the response to this liberal, paganistic Roman movement was Phariseeism. The conservatives joined this religious political party called Phariseeism that called people back to Scripture, that called people back to the covenant with God at Mount Sinai, that said we need to get away from Roman paganism. But the Pharisees swung the pendulum almost too far the other way They so wanted to bring people back to the covenant of God with Moses that they began insisting on a works righteousness. They focused on the rules. They focused on the rituals of the covenant to the point that your only hope of being right with God was to keep those perfectly. To have a works righteousness. Now, Peter, Simon, likely would have counted himself among the Pharisee party. He certainly would have fit in way more with them than with the liberal Sadducees. And these men were excited, Peter, other men around him, when this prophet called John the Baptist came on the scene and began preaching passionately for Israelites to repent. And to come back to God. And to come back to the covenant that was made at Sinai. As John the Baptist called out the corruption of Israel's leaders. As John the Baptist called out the wandering of the Israelites into the the belief of the, the Roman false gods. You can imagine Peter hearing John preach and saying, Amen. 
Now, we don't know if Peter was there the day that John declared Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We don't know if if he was there when Jesus was baptized by John and the people saw the dove and heard the voice from heaven. But Peter certainly knew about these things. And now that John the Baptist has been arrested and put in prison, and Jesus has begun his preaching ministry in earnest, this man Peter has become an ardent supporter of this man Jesus. He may have been instrumental in making sure that Jesus came to his town of Capernaum, that Jesus visited there and preached in the synagogue there. And as we've seen in Luke 4, after the synagogue service, Jesus stayed in Peter's home. He healed people at Peter's door. So Peter's been getting to know this man, Jesus. He's been listening to him. Even having conversations with him, considering the message of this man, Jesus. And he can already tell this man is not like the typical teachers and preachers of the Pharisees. This man, Jesus, is full of compassion, love, and grace, even as he's serious about calling people to repent, to believe and obey. But Jesus couldn't stay in Capernaum. Jesus, he had a mission to fulfill. He needed to go to all the other towns in Israel and preach the gospel to them as well. And so when Luke 4 came to an end, Jesus had left Capernaum. He had left where Peter was. Jesus is in the south. He's in Judea. He's preaching to the southern towns of Israel. As we come to Luke 5, we find that Jesus has returned. He's back near Capernaum. He's on the shores of Lake Gennesaret, which is actually just an older name for the Sea of Galilee. But Peter is a working man. He has a wife and likely children to care for. We met his mother-in-law already. At this point, Peter has not yet been following Jesus from town to town to town. Peter has had to keep his day job as a fisherman. Or maybe I should say his night job, for he and his fellow fishermen appear to have worked at night. There's lots of theories about why they did their fishing at night. I think the most obvious one is probably correct. They tended to catch more fish at night. Uh, Maybe it had something to do with cooler temperatures, bringing up fish. I I don't know, but they, they fished at night. If you ever visit the Sea of Galilee, you can go to the Jesus Boat Museum and see the boat that was found in the 1980s that dates from the time of Christ. Uh, They call it the Jesus Boat because it dates from his time. We don't know that Jesus ever actually was on that particular boat. But it is interesting to see because it tells us a lot about what these boats were like and what it may have been like to be a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. These boats tended to be shallow, flat-bottomed, so that men could get really close to the shoreline and fish. They had four staggered, inbuilt oars for rowing the boat, so you could row it, but they also had a small mast where you could sail the boat. Uh, The one that was found in the 80s is about 27 feet long, 8 feet wide. Not massive. 27 feet long, 8 feet wide. 
So on this particular morning, the fishermen have brought their boats to shore and they're washing their nets and they're done with the night's work. And it was a disappointing night because they caught nada. They didn't catch a single fish. And we're not talking about rods and reels here. These are drag nets. And they caught nothing. It's almost as if God has kept the fish out of their nets. And that's because God is setting up a big moment for his son. And it's going to be a big moment for Peter, too. It's going to be a life-changing moment. So let's see what happens. Luke 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the very word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Quite a story, isn't it? There's much to look at. We're going to limit our observations this morning to some characteristics of a true disciple of Christ. Some characteristics of a true disciple of Christ. So we see that Peter has some partners in his fishing business. And these partners also happen to be brothers, James and John. Uh, these three men have been working together in fishing for fish, and by the call of Christ, we're going to see them continue working together as they become fishers for men. Peter, James, John, these are not scholarly academics. They are common laborers. They are physically strong, countrymen, a little coarse, a little rough around the edges, calloused hands, a lot of real-life practical know-how. And these three men named in our text, Simon, James, John, they're going to become the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They're each going to receive nicknames, or more than nicknames, from Christ. James and John will be dubbed the Sons of Thunder. 
because of their zeal for justice and righteousness. Now we'll see this later when they ask Jesus if they can call down fire from heaven to consume a village that didn't welcome the Lord Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus said, let's not do that. Simon is going to receive the name Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock, which translated into Greek, Petros, Peter, right? And so we have the name Peter, rock, given by Christ to Simon. In the Old Testament, God changed names. Remember, Abram changed to Abraham. So Jesus gives these three men, this inner circle, special names. And it will be interesting as we go through Luke to see that Jesus liked giving nicknames. And so we'll see Thomas, he calls him the twin, probably because he had a twin and so forth. We'll see other nicknames as we walk along. So these three men will be those who Christ most pours himself into. These three men will be those most intimately trained by Christ, tested by Christ, rebuked by Christ, and encouraged by Christ. It will be these three men who later will go up the Mount of Transfiguration and will see something of Christ's glory unveiled to them. And these three men will be the three that go a little bit further with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and to pray on the night when he is betrayed. These three men that we meet in this passage will become pillars of the Christian church. And through their writings and their leadership, they're going to lay the foundation on which you and I stand today as Christians. These three men are going to suffer For the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to be remembered throughout all history for the ways that God used them. These three fishermen, they have adventures ahead for them. But right now, they're just three ordinary fishermen. They are fishermen who have the fires of their hearts stoked by what they've heard from John the Baptist. And now they're attracted to what they're hearing from this man, Jesus. We should also point out that at this point, they're tired fishermen. Because they're washing their nets after a long, disappointing night. They're probably looking forward to getting home, filling their bellies with some breakfast, and getting some sleep. Jesus is teaching along the shoreline. and Because of the crowd of people, he recruits Peter's help. Remember, Jesus knows Peter. They know each other. So he, he climbs in Peter's boat. Peter rows him just a bit off the shore so that Jesus can preach from the boat. And the people can see Jesus and they can hear what he's saying. Peter has heard Jesus preach before, probably several times now. He was in the synagogue when when Jesus preached in Capernaum, cast out the demon. And I don't think we could blame Peter. As he's sitting there by the oars and Jesus is preaching, he begins to nod off a little bit. Right? It's been a long night. Maybe his eyes are, are heavy. Ecclesiastes says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Well, that sleep may have been probably coming upon Peter. As Jesus just keeps preaching. And then Jesus turns from the crowd and sets his attention on Peter in the boat. Put out into the deep. Lit down your nets for a catch. 
And I imagine Peter had to stifle a groan. Right? I'm sure his chest tightened. His frustration rose. He just finished cleaning the nets. Right? Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Don't be too hard on Peter. Okay? Yes, there's probably some complaining going on here. But notice what bookends this complaint. Notice that at the beginning, he calls Jesus Master. Peter has not yet become a full-time called disciple. He's not yet become part of that discipleship team that Jesus is soon to put together. But Peter is already calling Jesus Master. And the word that Peter uses here refers to someone in charge, a person with authority over others. It's the word that students would use in a school for their teacher. So already we see that Peter has begun submitting himself to Christ. He's calling this man master. But he lets his complaint slip out. We fished all night. We didn't catch anything. I'm a fisherman. I know how this works. This is not the time of day. Jesus is looking at him. And I wish we could see how Jesus was looking at him. A look of authority, a look of compassion, a look of love. I think Peter wished he could take his complaint back the moment he said it. <laughs> Just pull it back in. right? Because he immediately follows up his complaint with, At your word, I will let down the nets. Mount Hermon, here is our first characteristic of a true disciple of Christ. Obedience. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is definitional to being a Christian. A disciple is one who has a teacher. A disciple learns from that teacher. A disciple receives from that teacher. But more than anything, a disciple follows the teachings of the teacher. A disciple, a disciple puts the teaching into practice. To be a disciple of Jesus means that the words of Christ have authority over you. And you receive your direction, you receive your marching orders from Christ. At his word, you let down the nets. Because it's his word. There are many who claim to love Jesus who are not his disciples. And the clearest evidence that they are not genuine is that they do not actually put into practice his teaching. John, the same John who's here in the other boat who witnessed this event, would later write these words. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Notice that Peter is being tested here because his flesh doesn't want to obey. He's the fisherman, not Jesus. The way we're going about this is all wrong. 
We're going to be wasting our time putting the nets out at the wrong time of day after we've already seen that the fish aren't active. We're not going to catch anything. And then we're going to have to go back to shore. And then I'm going to have to wash the nets all over again. And Peter is being challenged to put his own reasoning aside, to put his own personal comfort aside. Peter is being challenged to obey Christ even when the command doesn't make sense to his fisherman's mind. And when obeying means going longer without sleep and aching legs, hungry stomach. This is like the people of Israel being commanded to just march around the walls of Jericho. Or Naaman being told to go take a bath in the Jordan River and your leprosy will be gone. The real issue here is faith. Peter, do you trust Christ? And no matter what Peter may have said, the real proof in the pudding is whether or not he obeys. And he did. The real disciples of Jesus Christ are not first identified by what they say. They're identified by whether or not they actually do what's commanded. Peter did. And as always, the result of obeying Jesus was blessing. Now, the blessing doesn't typically look like this, but you can count on it, dear Christian. Every time you choose to trust and obey Christ, especially when it's difficult, Christ will bless that. This is what it means for God to be holy. He loves all that is good with a deep and infinite love, just as He hates all that is evil with a deep and infinite hatred. So when you do something that is in faith, when you trust Him and you obey Him and God gets the opportunity to crown His own work in you, He does it. Our Father loves to bless and He blesses obedience. And so, let me ask, is there something that Christ has commanded you to do that you are currently resisting? Are you still in the boat up near the shore, knowing what Jesus has told you to do, but you keep coming up with reasons not to do it? How long will you make your excuses? How long will you put off the joy that comes from doing the right thing, a conscience at peace? A disciple of Jesus obeys. Maybe it's getting serious about prayer or Bible study or witnessing to that lost friend or leaving your job to enter the ministry or the mission field. Maybe it's beginning to tithe or putting away some filthy habit, some, something that you know God would have you do away with. Maybe it's ending an inappropriate relationship. Maybe you're still putting off taking your stand with Christ, being baptized in his name, declaring once and for all that you are a Christian. I don't know what commands of Christ have come upon you through the Bible that you are resisting. But one lesson of this text this morning is that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it begins by trusting him enough to obey. Even if it's uncomfortable. 
will you say to Christ this morning at your word? I will obey. Now, if you read this passage with a careful eye, you will notice there's another person in the boat besides Peter and Christ. Peter says that he will let down the nets, but then we're told that they did so and that the catch of fish was so great that they signaled to their partners. So the they here is probably not referring to Peter and Jesus, but Peter and someone else. Luke is focused here on Peter and to a lesser extent in the other boat that's going to come, James and John. So he doesn't point out that other man, but there is a fourth man here who will also become a disciple of Christ. This is a man whom God will later use to bring the gospel to the Mediterranean islands of Cyprus and Malta. A man that will go from being a fisherman to a missionary into the Balkans, into Romania, into the nation of Georgia and the Ukraine. We know from Matthew's gospel that Andrew is here in the boat. Peter and Andrew fished his partners in one boat and they worked alongside James and John and they sometimes worked with their father Zebedee. Apparently he was still active in fishing. We know from the other gospels at this time as well. And so they worked from their boat and these two boats worked together. So we have Peter and Andrew in this boat with Jesus and in obedience they go out to the deep. They drop the dragnets And the nets become so full that they can't even pull them in. In fact, the boat's beginning to sink. And at this point, I'm thinking that all the sleepiness has left Peter. The adrenaline adrenaline is pumping. He's working hard to bring in the catch and to save the boat. At the same time, they signal for James and John to come and help get in these nets. The catch is so large that the weight of the nets is pulling both the boats down into the water. And then there's a moment where things have stabilized, they're headed towards shore, Peter can take a breath. They're coming to the shore with the greatest catch of their lives. And Peter looks at these nets full of fish, and he looks at this man in his boat, and the sheer weight of what has just happened just takes his breath right back away. This is no mere man. Something is going on here far bigger than boats and nets and fish. Peter is filled with a rising sense of the majesty of the sovereign Lord of the universe standing in his measly little fishing boat. And he falls at Jesus' knees. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here we see a second characteristic of a true disciple of Christ. True disciples of Christ know something of the glory of Christ. 
We cannot fully experience the glory of Christ in this life. And to be honest, even in the world to come, I don't think we will ever fully experience the glory of Christ. There is more to Christ as the Son of God, especially in His divine nature, than we as human creatures will ever be able to receive. The weight of Christ's glory, the brilliance of it, will forever be beyond us. I do think in heaven that God will give us a growing capacity to see and behold and adore the glory of God in Jesus Christ so that with each passing year, each passing century, each passing millennia, a billion years from now, we will be experiencing the fresh joys of the glory of God in ways that we cannot even imagine today, in ways that would obliterate us today. But right now, in this life, even if it's only a mustard seed, even if it's only a tiny sip of Christ's glory, all disciples of Jesus know something of his wonder. No one who has ever met Christ can treat him as a mere man. No one who has ever truly gotten some soul glimpse of Christ can come away completely unchanged and treat him as something normal. Show me the Christian who hears the name of Jesus used as a curse word and doesn't feel a pang because he sees how different the glory of Christ is from the way that name is being used. If you can show me somebody that doesn't feel that, that I don't think they know Christ. Because once you've met this man, even if you just a taste of his glory, you know Different than anything else in this world. The lost are blind, but the found they see. And we grasp for words to explain this. How can you explain to someone without taste buds what ice cream is like? How can you explain bright, vivid colors to someone who's lived their whole life in blindness? Only the Spirit of God can give someone the spiritual senses to know something, know it in their soul of the glory of Christ. And here, Peter is experiencing it in a unique and powerful way. So heavy was his sense of the grandeur of Jesus that it put him on his face on the floor of his boat. And as always happens... When sinners like us get a sense of the holy majesty of Jesus, we feel our sinfulness. We feel our unworthiness. Here is the sinless one, the second Adam, the truest man, pure goodness through and through on Peter's boat. As C.S. Lewis says, we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. I think that to be around Jesus was to experience both a fresh sense of all that we could be as human beings, the way Adam and Eve were in the garden before they were dulled and darkened by sin, 
to be around Jesus was also to have a sense of how far we have fallen. Not just as the human race, but individually as human beings. When I pray and I spend time with Jesus alone, I do feel a sense of unworthiness because I am part of this rebellious, fallen race. But what really makes me feel small when I'm in the presence of Christ is the knowledge of my own personal sins. The knowledge of my own corruption. The words that I have spoken. The deeds that I have done. To be in the presence of the Holy One is wonderfully terrifying and terrifyingly wonderful. Apart from the blood of Jesus that takes away our sins, we could never draw near to this Christ. Not really. Darkness hates the light. Darkness flees from the light. And Peter right now, he is feeling his darkness as he is right there in the presence of the light of the world. I was a teenager when somebody put into my hands the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And more than 20 years later, as I was working on this sermon, I remembered how that chapter that he wrote on this passage affected me deeply as a young man. So I'm just going to read you a snippet. Sproul says, The history of the life of Christ is a history of multitudes of people pushing through crowds just to get close to him. It's the leper crying out, have mercy on me. It's the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, reaching out to touch the hem of his garment. It's the thief on the cross straining to hear Jesus' dying words. It's people saying, come close to me, look at me, touch me. Not so Peter. His anguished plea was different. He asked Jesus to depart, to give him space, to leave him alone. Why? Well, it is not necessary to read between the lines because the lines themselves state precisely why Peter wanted Jesus gone. I am a sinful man. Sinful people are not comfortable in the presence of the holy. The cliche is that misery loves company. Another is that there is fellowship among thieves. But thieves do not seek the consoling presence of police officers. Sinful misery does not like the company of purity. Peter got a message that was impossible to miss. The transcendent standard of all righteousness and purity blazed before his eyes. And like Isaiah, Peter was undone. Dear friends, do you know what it is to be undone in the presence of Christ? Do you know what it is to have all the darkness of your soul exposed by the light of his holiness? Do you know what it is to see something of God and you you long for him and you desire him and yet at the same time that you want 
God, you also want to go run and hide because you're underdressed. Or better, you're covered in filth and sin. The way to glory is the way of humility. The way to becoming someone great in this world for Christ is to be brought low by owning up to your sin, acknowledging your vileness before God, sensing your sinfulness before God, and then hearing the voice of Jesus, blazing, majestic Jesus, saying, Do not be afraid. He says, isn't that amazing? Peter's trembling. He's overcome by the holiness of the man on the boat. He's feeling like he wants to jump out of the boat and swim with the fishes rather than be in the presence of this man. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Here is the marvelous truth of the gospel. Because of the cross of Christ, Because Jesus bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners, we do not have to be afraid of the Son of God. We can run to Him. We can approach Him. We can embrace Him. Yes, we will always tremble before His majesty. There will always be a holy fear that marks anyone who has ever come to know Jesus. But we need not fear His condemnation. We need not fear his anger or his fierce frown. No, all who humble themselves before him, he receives. He lifts up their heads. He says, dear one, do not be afraid. You are mine. And I have work for you to do. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness of sins, a relationship with the Holy One for all who are willing to bow. So many in this world are living for trifles. We are to be those who live for the smile on His face To please the one who has loved us and taken away our sins. May the will of God be our bread. May obedience to Christ be our road. May every one of us be true disciples of Christ. Amen? All right, more next week.